Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Travis Ference, and if you're not familiar with Travis, Travis is a mixer, producer, and recording engineer based out of Los Angeles, and he has worked on multiple number one albums, several top tens, numerous gold and platinum certified records. He's worked with artists such as John Mayer, Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, Imagine Dragons, and so many more. And I think you're going to really like this episode. In this episode, we talk a lot about the idea of using your DAW to do the work for you and how the process of recording, mixing, and editing your music, it can be quite time consuming. But there are definitely some things that you can do to make the process go a lot smoother and a lot faster for you. And in this episode, we get into some of those things as far as creating templates and how to properly gain stage things and a whole bunch of other great stuff that Travis goes into in this episode. And I think you're going to find it really, really helpful. If you find that your mixes take you a long time and you get frustrated by the process or you just feel like you lose creativity on your projects because you're just so deep into just setting up sessions and that kind of stuff, I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode because Travis has a great job of explaining ways that you can shortcut that process and make it a lot smoother and boost your creativity as a result. So without further ado, let's just jump right into this episode. Travis Ferrance, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? Great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. Of course. For people who might not know your background and your story and how you got into music, how you got into audio production and ultimately to where you are today, can you give us that story? Yeah. So uh, I guess I was kind of a late bloomer to music. I picked up guitar and and bass in like uh, late middle school, like eighth grade, to play bass in a talent show performance, which I was promptly fired from because I was awful. Because I've been playing bass for like twelve hours, you know. So uh, <laughs> that got the bug started, and and you know sent me down this road. Uh, I ended up getting into recording in high school, just on like uh, it was a digital recorder, a Korg D sixteen hundred. It had like you could use like eight plugins in it. I mean, it had built-in plugins. Uh, you could use eight on, if you weren't recording them, or four. No, four if you weren't recording them. Eight if you were printing them. So it was uh, it was fun to just absolutely ruin everything I recorded. But I think I know exactly um, what units you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I just I described it awfully, but people, you know, no, they don't exist anymore. So it's fine. No, nobody knows whether. Yeah, I'm right you wouldn't or wrong. want to use it anyway. Oh, it was, it was the worst. But uh, so that was. Um, that was how I got into recording. I ended up finding my way to Berkeley College of Music. I did that uh, for four years. Great experience. Really cool, cool spot. Um, and then went to LA right after that and started at Capitol Studios. So that was, that's like the, you know, the quick version of how I ended up in Los Angeles. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say just from school to Capitol right away, that seems like a, a pretty big step to make. Because I feel like it's not easy to get into Capitol, right? Uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a pretty tough studio. It's funny. There was like when I was leaving Berkeley, there's you know there's a lot of connections between studios and like teachers and former alumni and stuff like that. And nobody seemed to know anybody at Capitol. Like it was in Los Angeles, Village had lots of Berkeley guys, and Hanson had lots of Berkeley guys and girls, and uh, Interscope was another Berkeley spot. But nobody had gone to Capitol, and so I actually. Uh, there was an engineer, uh, a really famous engineer, Elliot Shiner, 
that was coming through Berkeley at the time. And I knew his son. We went to school together. And so I got to work with him on a couple sessions. And he said, hey, when you go out to L.A., like go to Capitol, tell, you know, tell Paula that I sent you over there and, and maybe you can get a job. Do, do that. So I figured, well, I have to do that first before I go and just start throwing out blind resumes. I got to I got to follow through and see if I can get a job here. And I guess you could say I got a job. I mean, I was hired on the spot. But I mean, I was working like four hours a week. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was kind of like uh, it, it took months, really, of kind of inching my way in there. But I was, you know, I was a paid uh, staff member from the beginning. It just, wow. wasn't, you know, like 40 bucks a week here, 80 bucks a week there. But eventually it turned into, you know. 60 80 hour weeks uh, <laughs> i was gonna and, say it and, probably went from nothing to a lot exactly yeah and there was a lot of like phone and i had to answer the phones for a bit to kind of get my foot in the door because there was no studio runner positions which is the job that i got quote hired for to to work two hours a week and uh so the desk guy left and me and another like floating guy we just split that desk job answering phones and then our reward was we would get some extra studio shifts. And then eventually, uh, I don't remember what happened, but eventually there was a, an opportunity for me to work 40 plus hours a week as a runner um, when, you know, cleaning and, and setting things up. So that, I jumped on that because I didn't want to answer the phone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta do it, man. It's like part of the part of the gig, I guess, right? I mean, the fact that you got in with a paid position right away, I think that's it's very rare to today's standards. Yeah, well, I think at the time, this is like, I don't know, this is like 2006. And I was I was torn between Nashville and Los Angeles because I grew up in North Carolina. I think I left that out of my speed intro. So going to Nashville made a lot of sense because I, I thought, you know, I, I felt like I was Southern, even though my parents were not from North Carolina. That's why I have no accent for those that are like confused. But, uh, you know, uh, the story at that time in Nashville was intern for X amount of time and you may or may not get hired. And it seemed to be a really tight community. And I had a lot of friends that weren't getting jobs really quick there. And all my friends that were going to LA, that wasn't the case in LA. It was all minimum wage runner positions, you know, with varying number of hours, but there was not a lot of internships that may or may not result in a job. So that and you know, the weather going from Boston, Massachusetts, where it was like freezing, you know, for spring break and coming out to Los Angeles where I was wearing like shorts and like shedding my jacket as I got off the plane, uh, kind of encouraged me to go to Los Angeles. So <laughs> it's my choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seemed, it seemed like the, uh, the better option of the two when you look at it that way, where people were kind of putting in the time and, and not really getting anything out of it versus like having something, even if it's low dollar, like you're, you got your foot in the door. You're, yeah. you're, you're an audio professional at that point. You're getting paid for it. I, I don't know if I would say professional. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically, like if you were talking to like grandma or something, you'd be like, yeah, I'm an audio professional. But if you were talking to another engineer, they'd be like, yeah, we know what you're doing. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so I, I just, it w I was definitely super fortunate to get that job right out of the gate. Um, but it did, like I said, it took about maybe five, six months before I was really making a living uh, you know, working in a studio. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's just kind of like, that's part of it. I think it does take some time to build your way up and to build that trust with people and, 
get get your foot in the right door and you know eventually yeah. they offer you that kind of position right yeah and i will say that was a really cool studio to work in because they did we did a lot of tv shows film school we were doing like the music for lost at the time there was always film scores in there then there were jazz bands then like studio b uh green day had done american idiot so for a while that was like a hot rock room i mean it still it still is but you know it had just done a big record, so everybody was, you know, jumping in there. Uh, Studio C was always doing surround sound film mixing, so there was such a wide variety of stuff to to learn. And the engineers in there were like the old school classic, just you know, the microphone technique, and um, it's it's something that I I feel unfortunate to say that a lot of up and coming engineers, if you're looking to get a job in a studio. It's not a lot of places like that left anymore that you can learn that stuff. So, mm-hmm. of course, but but it gives you that. Uh, I think I think there is something to that old school model sometimes of you know learning that very technical way of setting things up, and there's like a professionalism to it that I think will definitely benefit you in the long haul. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and people, I think people forget that you know a microphone is an e. It has an EQ curve. It it can do some of the work for you and. And when you watch those old school engineers treat microphones, you know, like somebody else would an EQ or, or reverb in the box because you only have one mic, these, these guys are swapping a brighter mic for a darker mic. They're moving it back. They're moving it forward. And so there, there really is like, there is an art to recording and it still does exist. And, you know, there's, uh, there's not a lot of people doing it, but the people that are doing it are busy doing it because they're for the ones sure. that do all those <laughs> sessions. <laughs> for sure. Well, I mean, there's only so much you can fix in the mix, right? So if you get it right at the source and you find all the right tools for the job, like you're, you're almost there, right? Yeah. Oh, and you go even a step past that and fix it at the guitar or fix it at the, the drum tuning as well. And that's the other thing that you learn in those, those big studios where you're recording amazing session players is all of the players and the instruments sound amazing. Yeah, and then you put a you know an amazing vintage microphone in front of it, and then you send it into a Neve console, and then you have a great song, and I mean you you're like mostly done <laughs> at, the, at that point. Absolutely, <laughs> then, all the, all yeah, the ingredients are there. Yeah, so and it always goes back to the source, of course. Versus like so many other places where it's like you get these like newer bands that don't know how to like maintain their gear or like tune their drums or their guitars or whatever. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Dr- drum tuning. I mean, I think if you're doing a session and you're, and you're in a place where there is a drum tuner and you have two choices, either pay somebody to come and tune the drums and put new heads on or like rent a vintage kit. I mean, I think you're going to get more bang for your buck. If you hire a drum tuner, there's probably a lot of people that are disagree with me, but I mean, if you can get the drums to sing from the beginning, then it's, you know, it doesn't matter where the microphones go because it just sounds great already. But if you can obviously get a nice vintage kit and get the drum tuner, put those two together, then you're uh, then you're set. I 100% agree with you. I think that like, you know, it, I mean, it's it's like having a really expensive guitar and giving it to like somebody who's never played before. Right. It's like, you're not going to get a good sound out of it. So it's like, it's like, just get, just tune up the instrument. And that's like, you're kind of, you're kind of a little further along the lines and hopefully you've got a good, good drummer that can play into it and that kind of thing. Right. And they'll they'll make anything sound good as long as it's in tune. Really? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It, it, 
I don't know. For, for me, the thing that I've taken away, like I've been doing this for like 15, 16 years. I can't, I'm starting to lose track. But uh, a great song and a great musician, and it doesn't matter what you put in. You don't have to be at Capitol. You could be in your basement with an SM57 and you could sing and play guitar into the same microphone. Just, you know, make sure you back up enough so it gets the whole thing. And if it's, if it's fucking great, then, then it's fucking great. I hope I can swear on your, sh- yeah, on your show. Yeah, you absolutely but, fucking can. Um, <laughs> it's perfect. Okay, good. Because that, that's really, that's what it comes down to. Because uh, if the content's not good, the mix isn't going to be great. The recording's not going to be great. Like, you know, yeah, just it's the song. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, there is that like hierarchy of instru- uh, like the, the signal, the whole signal chain has like a massive hierarchy to it. And it, it definitely starts off with like the musicians and the songs and Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. For sure. All that other EQ and compression and all that stuff you add after the fact isn't going to mask something that's bad to begin with. You can't polish a turd. Exactly. (laughs) You know, that's just what it comes down to. Yeah. I I think Gene Simmons is saying is, uh, yeah, you can't polish a turd, but you can spray paint it gold, but it's still a turd. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's just shiny. Yeah. It's still the same, right? Yeah. But hey, maybe somebody's looking for a shiny turd. You know, that's like, there are a, a lot of those out there, you know, you know. <laughs> depending on who you ask. There are, there are a lot of those out there in certain genres of music, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> but that's a really good point that you brought up about drum tuning, because I think that that is something that I, I think there's a lot of drummers that don't even know how to tune their kits. And as a drummer myself, I find it frustrating that, you know, like I, I know guys that are really good drummers and I'm like, how do you not know how to tune a kit? And so I, I do think that it's really important for engineers to learn like just learn the the basic maintenance of instruments, like regardless of if that's your primary instrument or not. I think it is important to understand those things so that in sessions you can at least come to it with some sort of basic knowledge and and hopefully make your session sound better just from tuning, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I am definitely not the one to tune your drum kit, but I can tell you like when there's when there's something that I know we can improve, whether it's, you know, getting a little flub out of there or, or you know, Tom's just not really singing right or or intonation between toms will make you crazy too like if they're too close or too far i mean you kind of have to be musical in the way those things go but uh, i can't fix it (laughs) so i just i pray to god there's somebody in the room that knows how to fix it so yeah and i'm sure somebody's listening to this right now thinking like well you could just add samples over top of it and i guess yeah (laughs) there are styles where you're recording triggers basically i mean that's cool too you know yeah but even still, like you're gonna have some overheads, and the 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 tones of those drums will still come through. Usually, I guess if it's just triggers, then you'll hear just taps. Oh yeah, yeah. A shitty snare in your overheads is always gonna sound like a shitty snare. <laughs> it's always gonna be there, even if you put those good samples on top. Always you're always gonna, gonna, gonna hear. There. It. And you know, cymbals. You know, getting a drummer. Like if you're a drummer and you're listening to this, and like you're not in the studio very often, like really think about the studio is very different from live. And you you said you're a drummer, so you yeah. understand this. But like the way you dig into those cymbals can really change how the engineer can handle the compression on those drum kits. So if you're just slaughtering the cymbals and you're slaughtering your hi hat, like your hi hat's going to be in the snare mic. Let's be honest. I'm going to mute your hi hat mic. I'm only putting it up there just so that you see a mic on the hi hat. <laughs> we're never going to listen to it. But yeah, you, there's there's a lot to playing the kit that also goes to making a great drum recording. Of course. Well. Yeah, I, I, that's a, a great 
point to bring up. And I actually remember that from my own, like my own experiences being in a studio. Like I was always a heavy hitter, like, you know, live, like whatever, you just like have fun and you bash away. Right. And I remember like recording at a session and, and the engineer was like, okay, that's great. But like, cool. Like 20% lighter. And it's like, yeah, okay. Feels unnatural, but we did it. And then I was like, oh shit, like my toms actually like resonate and like there's body to them. Like I'm not just pounding through the skin and cutting it off that, you know, it makes, it makes such a big difference when you play to the studio and you, and you kind of play a little lighter on your kids sometimes. Yeah. Have you had anybody tell you to play like no hat and no cymbals and just like kick snare toms? Yeah. Have to do it. And, and you know what? I love it to be honest. I oh, think you, okay. I, Some drummers can't do it. They're like, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I like, I long for the days when I can record a band like that. But like, so many guys hate it. But oh, like, they they make them crazy. But I've done it a bunch of times, and every time I do it, I'm like, holy shit, these sound really good. Like, I, I much prefer it. But it, yeah, because it, it's, you can it's do weird. crazy stuff to that drum kit. Like, if you don't have that symbol, you can get really aggressive with your saturation and, and your compression in ways that you could never do, even if there was just you know closed hi hat. So, but, yeah, uh, it's, it's yeah. such a weird process, but it definitely like it's, it's kind of freeing as an engineer after the fact when you're mixing, like it's like, oh, I don't have no symbol bleed. I don't have to like I gate know. these in a weird way and, you know, add weird EQs to get rid of this resonance here or whatever. It, it, it's it's awesome. But yeah, not not many drummers can do it. Yeah. 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 I'd love to dive a little bit more into your uh, mixing process. And I'm just curious, like when you start a mix, how or like where do you typically start? Well, let's see. I start I start by pulling everything into my template, which is a combination of routing and color coding stuff as well as a lot of my, you know, pre-made uh, you know, effects sends and and stuff like that. I mean, I do one of these days I'm just going to like not book work for a week and just sit there and go nuts on my template cuz I really want to like I want to I want to build it to be gain stage, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about my process, right? So um, but yeah, I pull it into the template. The first thing I do is, uh, match the rough mix. I just feel like after doing this for so long, the only thing that matters is that the energy of the rough mix exists from the beginning for me. And so a lot of times if, uh, if I can, I, I will set up a session or my assistant will set up a session, match the rough mix balance if it's not, you know, baked into the files and then leave it so that when I come back to mix I've turned down my breaths I've matched the rough mix and like I can just hit play and like be creative and I don't have to like stop and turn a bunch of things down or clean out some noise so I try if I can to not do that stuff on the same day so that's the first step is to prep get everything ready for me second step is uh mixing and I just kind of do it However, it comes to me, uh, I find like once the balance, like once the rough mix is matched, I find myself leaning more towards vocal stuff first, as opposed to like rhythm section. And then maybe I'll, I'll do like drums, bass and, and vocal, you know, together. But for me, I, mostly I'm living in the pop space, like for anybody that isn't unfamiliar with my work. So it's vocal is everything like this is the only thing that matters really unless there's no vocal and then there's some other element. So that's the other key that I think is to as quickly as possible identify the most important parts of the music. And so like in the intro, 
that might be some vocal sample thing or some like octave guitar thing but then as soon as the vocal comes in obviously the most important part is the vocal and then you can carry that through until the next moment when the vocal is not the focus so that i think will make anybody's mix go faster because you're kind of your job is to you know take the listener on the journey that the artist and the producer you know have created so anytime you're getting lost in the most amazing guitar tone ever when there's supposed to be listening to the vocal is just like kind of in my opinion a, a waste a waste of time <laughs> <laughs> but i mean not that like you shouldn't get in there and like tweak everything but uh there's priorities I, it's prior priorities so yeah generally i'm I'm starting with vocal stuff and you know spend 20 30 minutes just getting a better vocal sound than the rough mix has get some effects that are similar or effects that i think work better then I'll kind of cycle back through the instrumental and then I'll come, I, I try to keep everything playing at all times, unless I'm like looking for problem frequencies. I'm, I've become not much of a solo soloer, become less of a soloer, soloer. God, that's hard to say, but yeah, everybody knows soloer. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, Putting things in I solo. Just, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so don't solo anything. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I just find that like listening to everything in context is going to help you get to the end result faster um but i will say that there is a stipulation on that and the stipulation is that you've got to spend like five or ten years of your life over compressing over processing soloing ruining you basically need to ruin like a thousand songs before you ever do anything where you're like mm, yeah this is easy <laughs> so uh there there is a journey like and, you know if it's your first mix i think everything i just said will like help you get to the end result faster but there's a lot of learning in you know over analyzing the drums for like nine hours like, i don't think that's going to make your mix better but you need to do it at some point in your journey to like understand how to mix a song properly i think for sure there's like a point of diminishing returns as well right yeah. like when you're first starting you just have to go through that experience and learn the hard way and mess it exactly. up a couple times and yeah you figure it out for next time right yeah you have to you know say yes to every gig even if it's styles of music that you don't like you just have to do everything and then that's also how you i've talked about this before on, on my podcast or on other podcasts uh you kind of create that's the only way to create your sound or figure out like what your your thing is is to do a bunch of different things like maybe like in my case there's a lot of stuff that i take from the my capital days that really shape the way that i mix pop songs and obviously pop music doesn't sound anything like jazz and film scores and classic big band records. But there's that like fidelity aspect where it was like always respect the fidelity of something that I, that I came up through. And I think that kind of, you know, mixes together. So you kind of got to go on a journey and then eventually you, you know, like what your quote sound is. Yeah. Maybe your sound is that you have no sound. You're just a, a comedian. Some people don't. Some people, every mix is different, but that's I right. But that's their thing. I guess that is the sound. <laughs> and that's their sound. Their sound is whatever your sound is. Yeah. But I love what you said about trying to find the priority in the mix. Because I, I think I do think that, that, that I do think that that is really important. And I like that you brought up the idea of like you might have a guitar intro, but then the vocal comes in and like that guitar is no longer important at that point. You know, and it's like I one of my previous guests, Chris Shaw, he I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he did like Weezer and a whole bunch of other bands. But he he brought up a great exercise yeah. for it. And he basically said that, like, if you were to sing the song to somebody, 
what would you be singing? Would you be singing like the intro riff and then the vocal or like basically if you like took like smells like teen spirit, you'd be like, da 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 right? You'd sing like those parts. And then and based on what yeah. you would do in that case, that that is your priority right there. Like that's the easiest way to identify the catchiest thing in the song. That that is exactly yeah. You should take everything I said, delete that, and then just drop that piece of whatever Chris's podcast in there, <laughs> and just pitch shift it so it sounds a little bit like me. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like whatever the hook is at that moment is what's important, and you know, I think that people would be surprised what you can do to something that seems a little bit weird to make that thing like you know you might actually make the snare darker. Because that makes the vocal shinier in that plate in that section, or it's it's the relationship between the in the whole. The relationship of everything is what I think is important. So it's like once you identify that hook, let's say it's the vocal. I'm just going to talk about vocals all day. Sure. Uh, then that's like the only thing that matters in that section. So when you're EQing your guitars, or you're even even when you're in production, you're adding a synth pad or you're adding a percussion overdub. Like, what's that doing to the vocal? Like, if you're playing crazy 16th note tambourine over top the vocal, and and it's like acoustic guitar vocal 16th note, I mean, like, is that really what you want people to listen to? So, and mixing is the same way. It's what you just have to hear how everything interacts. So it's like if I'm making changes to the guitar, I'm listening to the vocal while I make those changes a lot of times. I'm making changes to the snare drum, I'm listening to how the vocal changes when I push the snare drum up or if I add more reverb to the snare drum. It's For me, it's all about, you know, staying focused on what's happening to those key elements when you're making mix moves, it's great. which is why yeah. soloing is out the window for me these days. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you kind of, over time, learn the different relationships and where different instruments fight for the same space and same frequencies. And, and based on that, like depending on your priority, you know where to look with EQ or whatever, right? Totally. And I mean, there's so many tools that you can use that, you know, will help you quote cheat. Or sometimes, you know, like, let's be honest, if you're not in a perfectly treated space, then you, you're having audio, you're, you're having listening issues, you can't really make decisions. So if you can put like FabFilter Pro Q3, I love to use for this. If you have that on your vocal, which I have that on like basically every track in my mix, there's a way that you can layer something else visually on the Pro Q3s. Am I describing Yeah, this? you're right. Yeah, it's, there's like that masking feature or something, right? Yeah, so like, you know, you can have kick and bass. That's easy, right? So you put, you put an EQ on the kick, you put an EQ on the bass. You can see the kick on the bass and you can see that, oh, they're both like really like living in 60 maybe one of them needs to live somewhere else. But if you're in, in like an untreated room, you're not really gonna hear that like you would in like a professional studio. So like, anyway, so back to the point is that there's a lot of tools that you can use that'll make some of these things work out better for you. Soothe has a side chain feature. Um, there's lots of metering tools. There's the track spacer, which I haven't used, but everybody tells me it's, it does what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, that's I would always recommend thinking about how everything interacts with everything else. Yeah, that's great. And, and it is, all these tools are great, and there definitely is a lot of benefit to it sometimes. But again, you always have to be cognizant of which instrument is that priority 
and so that you can make the decision of which which thing to cut, right? Which tool? Yeah, exactly. You're gonna see these like you know with Fab Filter, everything just goes red, and you're like, oh shit, everything's masking. Like, what do I do? Cut, 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 right? And like that can be True. dangerous. So that, yes, that is dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't hey. have anything left in like anything from like 200 to like a thousand. It would just be this giant hole. Yeah, you just get like fizz. <laughs> Uh, but but that's a, but those are great tools to to definitely use when you're first getting started and identifying those problematic things and and those are those are other ways that you can train your ears to to hear those things because if you don't know what you're looking for you're not just going to start randomly cutting you kind of have to have sense of what is causing problems right yes yeah 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 well and this is a complete absolute tangent but I just finished building this studio in my garage and I've worked in a lot of studios. Uh, and this is like the best I've, I've been able to hear anything in a long time, like outside of like studios like Capital. And so I've decided that I'm not buying any more plugins <laughs> now. Like, cause once you can hear everything, then you can, then you understand what was wrong with your mixes when you were in your old production studio or all of a sudden, like you realize that you were a lot of times fighting your environment more than you were fighting the content of the record you know it's like the bass may not have had as much low mids as you thought it did and then you did a bunch of crazy shit and that's why you're you know it's thin or or whatever this is all stuff that people think about but i think until you've been in a space where you actually believe everything is true you uh you have to remember that you can fool yourself when you're sweeping around looking for like that bad frequency. There's an aspect of the room that's going to come up when you push that, you know, when you, you know, you boost and like search, mm -hmm. right? You're just boosting something like 20 dB and the room might boost it 20 more dB. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, that's the thing. That's the thing that sounds horrible, but that's your, that's your room. And you just took out the fundamental of the piano, something like that. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Like I think, yeah, a lot of people just don't know the rooms, especially when they're just getting started and it is a totally untreated thing. And so that's where like, I think reference tracks are really important because it's like, oh, am I hearing the problem in, in this track too? If, if I am, yeah. then okay, maybe it's just my room, not in my mix. Yes, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you got to find the ways to learn your equipment, learn your rooms. And uh, yeah, I love what you said about just like not buying plugins. Like I, I, I think most of us already have way more plugins than we absolutely need <laughs> like, oh my god i don't it, need any more plugins <laughs> yeah and it's like i i just tell people like when you have like five different versions of the same 1176 or something like that already like just take a day and like just shoot them all out against each other see if you notice a difference decide which one you like best maybe you learn like this one has a little bit more bite to it or whatever like and just put that in your back pocket like that's 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 how you would use that tool when you need it, right? Like it, it, you just exactly. have to spend the time, learn your gear, learn your plugins and, and have that arsenal of tools that you can go to whenever, whenever it's required for the job. Right. Yeah. Well, that's your, that's your practice time. Like if you're learning guitar or bass, like, you know, you're just sitting there, you're shredding your scales and you're working on your, your chords or, or whatever. Like it, I think I, I, I know I did this and, and I think a lot of people do, you know, I didn't do that with audio to a certain extent. Like I was always working on something. And to me that kind of made me think that, oh, well, I'll be, I'll be better after I finish this mix or I'll be better after I record this band or I'll get better, I'll get better. And, you know, you don't sit around and compare your 1176 plugins like you just mentioned. And 
that's something that I'm trying to do more of now. And it's like, okay, let's pick my favorites of this. Let's save my settings that I like. I like it when this compressor hits here. I like it when this compressor hits here. I don't like this compressor. I can't believe I used to use it. And when you're not like working and you can sit there and analyze these things, I think that, that is super important. And I think a lot of people don't do that because like I said, I didn't do it for a long time. I have good friends that make a lot of money that they didn't do it for a long time. But eventually, like if you really want to like fast track your way to understanding what's going on, like you have to understand what the tools are. You can't just use the tools to make a record every day. It's not necessarily going to make you, uh, you know, any better than you were before you started. Of course. Yeah, I think a lot of us just have like habits that we load up certain pieces of gear and we just stick to those. Or there's the yeah. opposite side of it where it's like, always chasing a new plugin that's supposed to like drastically change your mix and it never does, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's always the, the go-tos, but I mean, you know, there is something to having your go-tos. Like I, sure. I spent like post, post capital, I, I went and I did a lot of pop songwriting sessions and I was like a vocal engineer for just thousands of songs that, are sitting on a hard drive somewhere because that's what happens when you work on songwriting sessions, you record everybody under the sun and then it all sits on a hard drive. But, uh, like if I knew what was going to work, I had a template that was built by like the gain stage and I had the same, you know, couple mics, the same, uh, vocal chain. And I knew like, you know, 35 on the 1073 with most singers is going to give me this much, compression off the 1176 if i have it set like this if i have the output here i'm going to come into pro tools at around you know zero vu which is like half the meter for anybody that you know thinks you need to fill the whole meter don't fill the whole meter uh and then you know there's compressors on those tracks and they're gonna i know how much they're gonna compress based on how much signal i'm putting into it and then i know how much the delay is going to be and the reverb is going to be and it it's like if you understand everything, you understand your tools and you can find a way to, you know, have your go-to things that you know how they work, then you can really work fast and kind of cater to the artist's vision or, or you, you basically, if you're engineering, you never want to be a barrier between the artist and what they're trying to get out. Otherwise, you're just a failed engineer at that point. That's a, that's a great point. Like the faster you can work and the smoother you can make your own sessions. It's not just, it's not just to your benefit. It's to everyone involved and, you know, it just makes more, more, uh, makes for a more pleasant experience and people keep yeah. coming back because of that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and maybe, you know, it means that more gets done when they work with you than when they work with somebody else. And then they're always like, Hey, we get two songs done when we work with Mike and we only get one song done when we work with Jim. Like, let's go work with Mike. He's, he's, he's faster. We get more done. Like, I like his vibe. It's, we don't have to sit around and wait for him to fix something. It's just going. So I think stuff like that, uh, is important, you know, when you're in the engineering chair, even for sure. in the mix chair too. Like if you have a client in the room, which is like basically never these days, you also need to, you know, have your go-tos. Like if somebody's like, I want to distort this vocal, that's not a very good time to experiment with four distortion plugins. Just grab the one that you know use that one. Of course. That's a great point. Great point. You had mentioned earlier that you uh, typically work off of a template and you had mentioned the idea of creating a template that was gain staged. Could you, could you go into more detail about that? Is that exactly what you're talking about here of just like knowing that you're always recording at the same signal and every other plugin is, is reacting based on a certain level? 
Yeah, basically, I wish that my mix template was built out the way that my old vocal recording template was because I knew, like I said, I knew exactly what was going to happen when signal went into that record track. I mean, so much so that I could give it to like an assistant that was filling in for me and be like, hey, man, just fill the meter halfway. It's going to sound great. Um, And so I wish that I had the time to sit down and, and do that with my mix template. But basically what I'm talking about is it's, you know, if you are working with a template, you probably have whatever your favorite drum compressor or your favorite vo- vocals, right? If you got your favorite vocal compressor, maybe two favorite compressors on your track, but you're going to get audio files from somebody that are going to vary. You know, they might not have had a compressor on it. It might be a really small file because they didn't want to distort it. It might be like a huge, like there might be a lot of gain on that file. So obviously, if you have a really loud recorded vocal and you have your 1176 plugin set to, you know, a rational level, as soon as you drop that file into that aux or whatever, like that 1176 is just going to pin because it's not, you're, you don't have it set to be this loud vocal. So basically, I kind of want to build out a system that'll let me very quickly get all of my compressors and and, you know, saturation, color, tape, just to be in their optimal place, the places that I like them. And right now I, you know, I do that manually as I mix. Just with like clip gain or something like that? Yeah, clip gain, like I'll go through, I'll, I'll even the vocal out, like, you know, the verse will be quiet or whatever. I, I just visually kind of have a idea of what's probably going to work. Um, but I would like to just, you know, there's this new plugin, I don't know if it's new, it's called Defaulter. I've heard of it. I haven't used it yet, but yeah, I think it does something like that, right? Where it auto, something like auto that. Like, yeah, it's like nor it it uses clip gain, I think. Anyway, I, that that's something I'm going to look at, maybe incorporating into just like setting all this gain structure up. Because you also have to remember, if any, so anybody that didn't come up through like the analog world, um, electronics have like a maximum, right? When you're in that analog world. Like you push the tape really hard, it like compresses and saturates and then finally like distorts, the gear distorts. Like the optimum level of everything is kind of based on the old analog world, right? Because everybody's, I want to use my UAD this, my UAD that, my UAD this. Well, those things are modeling analog boxes that, you know, don't sound as good as possible when you crank into them. So keep that in mind when you're like, it just sounds a little distorted. Well, that's because, you know, you're pushing your 1176 just a just a bit too hard, and then you got a tape machine after a tape plug-in after that, and you're pushing it just a bit too hard, and then you got another, you got a pull tech, and it's just a bit too hard, and you you so you take like, you take ten a bit too hards, and you layer them on top, and you start to get that harshness, you know. Absolutely, start to break up. Well, I think, and that's why you brought up that idea of like, you know, don't try to maximize your level inside of your software. Like, hit that fifty percent marker because that's probably going to be more like zero VU, which is closer to what that analog gear is meant to be for, right? Exactly. And I mean, I guess I should say, like, if you're using Pro Tools and you started, you know, in the last couple of years, they've changed the metering. So I, I switch wherever I go, I switch to Pro Tools Classic. Me too, because I know, I know that one. Like, and it's funny. To say like, oh, I really love my meter. It's like, I can tell. Like if if I don't check the meter and I'm like in a session, I'm like, this feels weird. This feels weird. Something's wrong here. And then I'll 
right click on that meter and see that it's like whatever they call the new one or, or digital digital vu or, or or whatever and i'm just like yeah no, i can't use this shit i can't use this well it makes <laughs> sense like the vu meter is that tool that you're used to right like that's you've you've created a workflow for yourself that relies on a specific tool to react a certain way exactly and so it yeah. makes sense like yeah it's like old schools you know analog boards you always had your vu meter it was like you're you're trying to hit zero you know, right. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't you don't want to pin it because then it gets starts getting crunchy and you're like, OK, all right. Yeah. Doesn't sound as great anymore. It starts to like fold in on itself, you know, so. Yeah, but that's a really good point. And I, th I do think people out there that are just getting into this that maybe haven't had that analog experience. They they just assume like, oh, I just got to make everything as loud as possible. And that's that's the way you're supposed to do it. And and and, you know, they hear maybe like from analog days, like, oh, you don't want to record your levels too low. So then they think, OK, well, I just got to max it out and zero is the highest. And that's what the U meters hit. So I guess it's the same thing. Right. And it's like, no, you have to understand, like we're, we're looking with different meters here. Yeah, there's no there's no noise floor that you're trying to get over. That's like inherent in the recorder anymore. Like those days are gone. So, you know, if it's too quiet, you can just turn it up, you know, as yeah. long as it's, you know, getting past the signal noise ratio of like the equipment because everything everything has an amount of noise to it right but, mm -hmm. but yeah you don't have to turn it all the way up just don't turn it all the way up because then you know if you only have one or two db of headroom on your vocal because we're always talking about vocals and you throw an eq on there and you're like oh, i really want this to be nice and airy and bright you crank up the top end and you're just going to start clipping the output of your eq because you don't have any headroom because eq is adding gain and now you've added four, five dB of top end, and yeah, it's going to be louder. You might be clipping now. So, and that, and and again, going back to your template, it's like this is even more of the reason to have like a consistent level that you shoot for, because then you can build your template to work for you and do that work, and not have to go into every plugin and adjust the gain levels and you know yeah. thresholds and this and that. It's, it just it just does the work for you because it's meant to have a certain level feeding it, right? Yeah, it, 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 exactly. Well, there's no other way to say it except it starts to do some of the work for you, which I think is, is the key to like, to anything. Like even if you're, if you're sitting down to like write a track, right. And you have Ableton in front of you or whatever, and you've, you've no instruments in there. Like making a track is, it's like such a process. You're like, I got to open my contact. I got to open my favorite, my, my, um, Nexus. I don't think anybody uses Nexus anymore, but you know, and then you have to open every single synth and then you can start making music. Like, is that really what you want to do? You want to open every plugin every time, even though you love this 808 sound? Well, just make a template that has that 808 sound, that Juno pad you like, like your, you know, battery kit or your Ableton kit, like with your favorite shit in it. Like, why do you want to start from scratch? Because you want to torture yourself and make everything take like seven days? It's more creative that way. <laughs> yeah, man. I love I love it when it takes me six days to get drum sounds. No, yeah. <laughs> there's no budgets for that anymore. But Yeah, it's like, it explains why so many people have this great idea in their head and then they start to record, or they, they go to record and then two hours passes and they've just got their drum MIDI programmed and they're like, oh shit, what was that? cool thing that i had in my mind like for guitar like uh, you've lost it because you're you're spending too much time just setting up your sessions and not actually making music yeah i mean if you want to talk about uh, like if you want to talk about like a workflow thing like you know in those pop songwriting session days it's like i watched producers sit down and make a beat like a, a like a killer track 
in like 10 minutes because they have their template. Everything's in there because the, the artist doesn't want to sit there and wait, right? You find some chords you like, the artist is vibing. She's like singing, you know, melodies into her phone. You start putting some drums down. You get like eight bars, maybe 16 bars, like two kind of sections. They bounce it out, give it to me. I'd throw it in Pro Tools. Artists would start laying some ideas down. Look back, producer's got his headphones on, still going to town. Like 10 minutes later, he's like, hey, here's another track. Can you pop this in Pro Tools? She's going to like that a lot better. And then she's like, whoa, this is awesome. So like when you see when you see people work that fast, when you can see like a song basically get 85% there, like far enough to send to A&R or, you know, pitch to a movie or whatever in like an hour, you're like, oh, wow. Like this is how the world actually works. Like when there's no barriers to your creativity that are technical that you can solve, like these are all solvable problems, then you can just get so much work done. It's, you know, it just it's just being smart and efficient, really. Yeah, I love that, man. I, I, I'm 100% with you on that. I, I think too many people waste a lot of their time just getting stuff set up that they're always going to their go-to thing anyway. So, you right. know, it's just like, why not template it? And that will make your life a lot easier. Yeah, and it's not going to make you, it's not going to make your mixes sound the same. It's going to make you more creative because you now have, you have this freedom. It's, you know, it's like instead of, Making a vocal send, like making an, making a reverb send, opening you know vintage verb at the default setting, and throwing that on the vocal. In that same amount of time that you did that, you could open vintage verb and change the pre delay, pop through a couple settings. You can actually like change it, you know, and make make something custom and not like waste that time. Not that you know you would just use the uh, the default. Like, which does sound amazing, let's be honest. Uh, but if you eliminate that 25 seconds, then that's 25 more seconds that you can be creative. And then you do that 100 times in a mix. That's a lot of extra creativity. Yeah, I love that. I love that you brought up that point because that's always the one complaint that I hear when I whenever I suggest templates to people. They're like, ah, but isn't everything, isn't everything going to sound the same? It's like, no, like you're working on a different song, different chords, different lyrics different patterns on drums and guitar or whatever like it's gonna sound different because it's a different song like yeah you've got maybe the template there to get you up and running but you also like you said you have more time to like experiment and find fine-tune things yeah yeah and it's gonna it's a different day like it's gonna sound different because it's a different day like you're in a different mood you're gonna have a different vibe and maybe your mood that day is like a little washy and darker than normal and it's like a little more verbed out and it's cool like you know it's kind of a little woo-woo but yeah everything's everything the song's different the person's different the mood's different the weather's nice like it's of course it's going to be different even though all the plugins are the same <laughs> i love it man i i'm I'm so glad that you said it the way you did because yeah it, it's so true like <laughs> people need to hear that and and just get out of their heads that like everything's gonna sound the same half the time people don't even like the sound of their mixes to begin with so like you know it's like just whatever just just find find the thing that makes you work faster and smarter and more creative and and you'll you'll get a better sound as a result of that not the setup and all that stuff right that does nothing yeah to, that does nothing for yeah. you yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was when I was listening to a bunch of the mixes that you've worked on, one thing that immediately stood out to me was how big your tracks sound. Like you just have an incredible way of getting a, a clearly defined low end and your songs have a lot of dimension to them. And so I was just wondering, like, 
when it comes to creating big low end and getting that clarity in there, do you have any tips for that? Um, I don't know. It like I like I've talked about. It comes down to being able to hear it, right? So, like low end is the thing that if you can't hear it, you can't solve it. So that's first, you know. And if that's like you need to put some room EQ on, I'm not a fan of some types of room EQ, or you need to get some like fancy headphones or something. Like that's that's the first step to solving a low end issue. The other step, I think, is just you know this is a cliche thing to say, but the kick and the bass, they live, they're gonna, they take up all the same space, but you can't really let them. And so, like, if the if the fundamental of the kick is higher than the the sub bass, take some of the low end out of the kick. Like, the kick doesn't need a bunch of fifty if you've got a sub bass in there that's gonna carry the fifty, and you've got this like nice thickness like a little bit higher up. Bump, bump that a little bit and like dip out, you know dip out some 50 where the sub base is. Um, also just clearing up space. You know, you forget about like things like, uh, like live acoustic guitar that's like really quiet, right? And it's like finger picked, like a truck drives by. There's like constant rumble on that microphone sometimes. Like that's a bunch of like 30 Hertz shit that you can't hear. You can see it, but you can't hear it. But it's also like screwing up how your speakers are moving when your sub bass hits. Like cut that out. Like the a nylon acoustic guitar can have a, you know, a hard pass on it. At whatever, like a hundred. Like you don't need anything else down there because the only stuff down there is garbage. It's gonna screw with everything else. Same with vocals. You get like some rumble from like room tone or something like that. Like make sure that stuff disappears because that stuff will ruin. Um, you know, eight like 808s and kick drums, like vinyl. Everybody loves putting like sound effects and vinyl into into their tracks now, right? Well, it's just a bunch of rumble down there. So filter that stuff out too. Like just be be aware that everything in a mix has energy basically everywhere, right? So like we talked about earlier, everything's gonna affect each other. So the more instruments that have low end that don't need low end, the more masking you're going to have on your low end and w on the instruments that need it. And so that, that's, I mean, you know, like I said, it's kind of a cliche statement, but that's the stuff I do to my low end is I take a bunch of low end out of other things and I make sure that the kick and the bass both have a space, you know, maybe, and maybe it's not a, you know, it's like 40 Hertz and like 60 Hertz or like, it's not like, you know, not like pushing up like 300 to make it, you know, stick out there. Like it, it can be close, but you know, you can do do things like um, get some of the EQs that sidechain, right? So every time the kick hits, you can like take a little bit of 50 out of the 808 or whatever. And it's really just like letting those things be together. And then obviously phase alignment as well. Like if you've got three kick samples, um, they need to be in phase. They need to all hit at the same time because nothing will slaughter your low end faster than that. So, yeah, that's uh, great. Uh, that's a great point about cleaning up the low end because, yeah, people don't people underestimate how much headroom that stuff takes up. You know, like I remember like one of my one of my early mentors, he was just like, put a sign like a, a sine wave generator on a plug in or on, on, a, on a track and just set it to like 25 hertz and start turning it up until you can hear that low end and pay attention to your meters. And by the time you actually like really hear it, you're like, oh shit, I maxed out. So it's like, yeah. you know, that that to me made me realize, oh shit, like, okay, like I really don't need a lot of this subby stuff that I can't really hear, you know, on, on most instruments, right? 
Well, and, you know, talking about electronics, that's the stuff that's going to trigger your electronics. So, like, if your compressor is not sidechained or, uh, you know, doesn't have an EQ on the sidechain, well, then it's going to start triggering as, as the energy increases. And if there's energy that you can't audibly hear that's yanking that compressor down, then you're sure as hell not going to get, like, the compressed guitar sound that you want. You need to get rid of that energy before it goes into the compressor. Absolutely. What about when it comes to things like creating depth and width in a track? Like, do you have any tips for that? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I do potentially a disturbing amount of MSEQ. I don't know, like, what would be a socially acceptable amount. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do I do a lot of stuff, and it goes back to the whole vocal is the centerpiece. So, like, if I don't want to make the guitars, you know, like, let's use a keyboard. I don't want to make the the synth feel smaller, but it's like also swallowing the body of the vocal. I will. I'm not afraid to put an MSEQ and duck the middle down where it's masking the vocal and let the vocal have that body there. And also by doing that, now I've got this wider feeling synth because I've now screwed with the middle. So um, there's some width there. And, and also answer some of your clarity question. The, the depth thing, I do a lot of things with like a little bit of delay or just a touch of reverb. Like I have a, the Eventide uh, SP2016, right? Um, I have a setting on there that's like very, very short and it takes all the high end off. And so I just load that up and it's like 50% mix. And it'll just kind of take something and like lean it back a little bit. And you also have to remember, like, think about how people listen, like perceive music, right? Like bright can feel closer and warm and dark can feel further away. So if you make something a little darker, you put a little bit of like space on it. That's not necessarily massive reverb. Then it's going to start to like take a step back in the soundstage. And if you want to take a further step back, then you can start to put like, you know, a like a super wet verb on it or or make it really dark but i also do a lot of stuff like that to try to like push things forward and back so i love that yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense it's, it's like creative placement not just panning but like adding the depth with some delay that, that makes a lot of sense i mean it's it's how we actually hear sounds and everyday life yeah. so why not implement yeah. it into Ex a mix right? exactly exactly yeah <laughs> i think people forget about that right they just look at their tools and they're like oh like I see panning, I see like EQ and compression, whatever. They don't realize like, oh, wait a minute. Delay is actually like a major part of how we listen to sounds and that that high frequency and low frequency stuff. Like it, it, it's all relevant. You know, I, I, I remember like I worked in audio post-production and like that's where like you utilize the shit out of that because it's like, oh, yeah, somebody's farther away from the scene. Like you got to you got to take off some of that top end. And, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, like that makes a lot of sense. Like, you yeah. know, otherwise everyone want to make something like uh, take one step back just like just a tiny little step back. I like to take decapitator. I love decapitator as an EQ because it's got that tone knob. I have yeah. no clue like what the frequency is on that tone knob, but you just take it like, you know, if you go one dot back to the, or one dot darker, it might, might be too dark, but you go like halfway and something just kind of goes and you're like, oh, okay. All right, cool. Now you're further away. Thanks for taking a step back. And yeah, so let's just make it a little darker. But I also, the, there's a little cheat. I love to use decapitator as an EQ. I, I love that. I, I'm definitely writing that down so that we can uh, put that in the show notes because people, yeah, that, that's good. Like it, it, 
it's just another tool and and yeah it's a cool eq when you when you get into it yeah yeah, yeah it's a good box um one one last question because i know we're running short on time but uh in in the end like ultimately what makes a good mix to you um i think if there is anything that takes the listener out of the experience then it's a bad mix and so for me a good mix is a mix that i can listen to you know, from start to finish and not be like, what was that word? Or God, that was really loud. Like if there's anything that takes me out of the story, but I should say that I also firmly believe that something being too loud can be really amazing if that's what the feeling is. So, so yeah, so a good mix for me is really just something that takes the listener on the journey. Like I, like I talked about, like so many people talk about, and has eliminated any potential barrier. Like if the if the artist wants something to be the most reverbed out thing that they've ever heard, like you need to find a way that something can be that reverbed out, but not make the listener want to like go to the next song. So to me, that's that's the goal. Is whatever the artist vision is, just put it out there in a way that every person can can you know, digest it and enjoy it and isn't turned off by it unless they're supposed to be turned off by it. <laughs> hey, sometimes that is the effect as well, right? <laughs> exactly. Sometimes that is what the artist wants. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's kind of a simple answer, but to no. me, that's, that is, uh, that's the only purpose. That makes a lot of sense. And I totally agree with you. It's like, if, if your mix is distracting, people will skip it. They'll get tired of it. And like, there's a lot of reasons to pull people out of a mix. So just avoid those things. I feel like in your career, you're going to mix a bunch of songs. You're going to, or you're going to record a bunch of music. You're going to do a horrible job on some of it, but that's all like learning the process. And then eventually you no longer have the urge to like validate what you did. If that makes sense. Like you're, you, one day you'll like wake up and you'd be like, my sole purpose is to take the listener on the journey. And it's not to, you know, make a cool distortion sound. Because you've done that like for 10 years of your career and eventually that stuff ends. And then, you know, I think that's when mixing almost becomes easier because you kind of give up like the the rabbit holes and you're just like, hey, artist, what do you want? Oh, you want this? Cool. Let's do that. Like I'll, I will do that 100% and I'm going to have zero ego while I do it. I think. I love that. Yeah. I mean, taking your ego out of the process is definitely an important thing and it's something, especially like in the early days, so many people are just so in their heads about things like that. You know, you have to, you have to learn to drop that. In. And it makes, it makes everyone's experience so much better when you do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I basically, you know, I don't do anything that isn't the rough mix improved upon a thousand percent. Like if there's a creative choice, like I'm first, I'm going to do the mix and then I'm gonna be like, hey, here's an here's another one where like I I did this, I made this creative choice. And if you don't like it, that's cool. Cause I've had plenty of songs like as you come up where you're like, this is awesome. And people are like, why would you do this to my song? And you're like, cause it's awesome. <laughs> and they're like, did you listen to my song? And I'm like, yeah. And I made it awesome. And they're like, yeah, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that that's a really good point. It's like sometimes if you're trying to trying to insert too much of yourself into a mix it's you've forgotten all about the artist's vision and you know 
I mean, you have, you have to like have those lines of communication with the artists to know how flexible they are and what kind of things they're into. Because some, because yeah. let's face it, like some artists don't know how to to mix their own stuff, so the rough mix you get might not be that good because they just don't know what to do to it. And so they are relying on your expertise and your creative opinion sometimes. But but yeah, there is there is that balance of going overboard and being like, yeah, I, I distorted everything because I think it sounds cool, and then be like, ah, we want this to be clean. <laughs> That's that's the hardest part, I think, is when you get those rough mixes that are not good. But the the thing that I I make sure that I'm always doing is I'm always flipping back to the rough, and it and even if it's like cloudy and distorted and like shitty, like whatever the problem with the rough is that everybody knows is a problem. There's also almost always an energy and like a vibe. And if I flip over to my clean, polished, or dirty, like whatever I've done. If I feel like there is even just a half a percent of like energy difference, then it's like, okay, I need to dissect what part of this mess I need to bring back because there's something in this mess that is cooler than what I've done. And that's, un- you know, like that can't be. So I think that that's actually really challenging. Um, and that that is very hard to do when you have like one of those really bad rough mixes, but you're like flipping back and forth between your mix and you're like, what is it? Like, what is it that makes me more excited about this really awful mix that I have not found in mine? And sometimes you just have to maybe give it a little bit more wash or, or whatever. You just have to identify that thing. And, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoy those. Those are, those are always tricky. Those, those ones are fun. It's fun. And that that is kind of one of the, one of those lessons that you have to learn as an engineer too, is like kind of, um, uh, reverse engineering some of these rough mixes, you know, like it's, it's a challenge because sometimes you're just used to your own ways of cleaning up certain things and you always cut certain frequencies and stuff. And then you hear a mix. that's like, actually, this is pretty cool, but how, like, how did they get this? Like, Oh, they, they, it's that frequency. I always cut like, you know, that, that actually does something cool. Maybe I should use this. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing a mix right now. And, uh, the producer bounced out the effect sends, which I, I get like, I don't know, 40% of the time, I just get like reverb, right? And well, in this case, all the vocals are in the reverb. And obviously, I can't use that because I'll never be able to print stems or like everything's going to be different. So I'm like soloing the reverb and then I have my reverb soloed and I'm just like going back and forth between like their reverb print and my recreation of it. And, and that's kind of, uh, it was a really fun experiment. I'm like, okay, there's this, there's this thicker. Cause you, I'm just listening to reverbs, right? I'm like, okay, all right. So this needs to be longer and a little pre-delay here. And, and then, uh, and you know, and then you match it, but then you, you might find like a, like maybe I did something I would have never done and we'll save a little preset there for yourself later. And mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah. That's, that's a great exercise to go through as well. Just, yeah. Listen to those little details and try to recreate stuff. I remember even like when I was in audio college, like one of our projects was for us to like completely like recreate uh, a song, like whatever song we chose, we we had to like completely redo it and re-record everything. And and like when you actually start like really listening to a lot of the details of things, you're like, oh, like I never realized how much delay was on this or, you know, like there's there's so much more of like 200 hertz than I thought or whatever, you know, like you you start to dissect this stuff and you're like, oh, that's how they did this. I I like this. (laughs) Yeah. I remember who said this, but it was, maybe it was an article or whatever, but basically, you know, every hit song you've ever heard has like, you know, four or five just mistakes in it. And whether it's like, you know, a bad 
mute or like a add a tune thing here or there and you never hear that stuff until you you break it down and like you were like wait was there a tape edit there did, did the end of that word just disappear <laughs> yeah i i even remember like I, I was in nashville and we did a tour of uh rca studio b and they were playing us some they were playing some elvis song and they're like listen to this but like Listen carefully because most people don't catch it, but like he hit his face on the microphone at the beginning of the song and you can hear like him just like go like like that, you know, like just tapping yeah. the mic. <laughs> and like most people don't catch it, but it's there. Like so <laughs> you know it's, Yeah, it's pretty funny. Well, dude, you had so much great stuff here to share with people and I think there's a lot for people to take from this. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to do this. Yeah, if people want to learn more about you and the projects you're working on or maybe even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so my website is travisference.com. Um, I'm assuming you put it in the show notes. So I don't yep. have to spell it. Uh, Instagram is probably the only social I'm really active in. Uh, and that's T Ferentz at T Ferentz. Um, you can find me on Twitter. You're not going to get anything though. Same on <laughs> Facebook, you know, feel free to find me there, but you're not getting anything. Um, and then I also have a podcast. It's called progression success in the music industry. It's kind of a, uh, it's an interview show kind of like you're doing, um, and it's kind of for the, like, if you, if you feel like you're like, you're good at what you're doing or you're stuck and you, and you just kind of feel like there's like a, it's like a mindset thing. Like if you want to go into like some mindset productivity type things or just like different ways to look at, I don't know, your career growth, it basically stems from the fact that I tried to fit into the mold that was described to me by college and, and by the, by the music industry for like 10 years and uh, I'm much happier now that I don't give a shit what that mold of success is and I've defined it for myself. So uh, if you want to hear people talk about that kind of stuff, um, that that show is where podcasts are. But other than that, you know, hit me up. If you have a, if you have a question about a record I worked on or if you want to work together or if you, you want, want to geek out on gear, I don't care. I just like meeting people. That's, that's what I've learned over the last couple of years during the pandemic. Just talk to strangers and, uh, <laughs> and it's nice. So yeah. hit me up. Awesome. Yeah. And, and people should definitely check out the podcast. I, I was, as I was telling you before we started recording, I've been listening to it lately and it's, it's awesome, man. Like you definitely tackle a lot that. of, you definitely tackle a lot of like great mind, sh mind shift things that people need to, to hear. And I think that the whole idea of like, you know, figuring out your work-life balance and you know, what the industry says you're supposed to do versus what is best for you. Like that's something it's the, at least from the episodes I've listened to, I've heard a lot of that kind of stuff and uh, it's, it's definitely been very therapeutic and good. <laughs> oh, well, I appreciate that. Well, you know, it's like not everybody's going to win a Grammy, you know, and it's, if you are just, you believe that the only way to be successful in the music industry is to have a number one record or to have a Grammy or to have a million dollars, like the chances that you're going to be really bummed are pretty high, but there's also like a way that you can approach your life that you focus on making yourself happy and you're going to be more successful and happier if you know what I mean. So that's kind of, and like I said, the, the pot, that, that whole thing stems from all the changes that I made in my life like three or four years ago. And I just think that people, especially in the studio world, like if you're a runner in a studio right now, like you're probably, probably have some like poisonous, um, mindsets that you, can get rid of that are going to help you and the sooner you get rid of those the better trust me yeah <laughs> awesome man well well thanks again for doing this i really appreciate it yeah i thank you man I, this was uh this was a lot of fun i, I wish i had more time we could we could keep partying but uh it's yeah, all right we'll have, we'll have to have you back cool
So that was my episode with Travis Ference, and that was a great interview. I thought t Travis did an amazing job of detailing his process, and I love what he had to say about creating templates and you know making sure that you've got your gain stagings properly set up so that your templates really do that work for you, and your plugins do what you want them to do because they're getting the signal that they ultimately want. And I think that that is definitely something that is super important. And uh, in fact, I actually have a uh, workshop that I put together a while ago called the Mixed Template Building Workshop, and that is definitely a big part of it. You know, like creating templates that do the work for you. And when you have consistency, it makes your process go a lot faster. And when you've got a template that is designed to help you boost creativity, well, that, that's the ultimate goal, right? You don't want to be spending hours and hours just doing setup because you're going to forget all of your great ideas. You're going to lose sight of what's important in your mix. And ultimately, your mixes are going to just suffer because you're burnt out from that. So when you have a template that's set up to help you be more creative, that is absolute gold. So definitely highly recommend that uh, you listen back to this episode and get a sense of what kind of things you could put in your template so that you can make your process go a lot smoother. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I hope that you found it helpful. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you get notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings and mixes from their home studios. And on the website, I've got a ton of great resources designed to help make the process easy for you. And one of which that you're definitely gonna want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. It is a book that I put out a while ago that walks you through the entire process of mixing from beginning to end, explaining the tools and what to listen for, what things to be boosting, what things to be cutting, what things to be considering. That way you can make sure that your mixes sound the absolute best that they can and that you don't end up with mixes that just sound like demos. Instead, the whole point here is to help you make radio-ready mixes from home and do it confidently and do it with ease. So that is all detailed inside of my book called The Mixing Mindset. And once again, that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for this episode, guys. I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. <laughs>